Hi, folks. Welcome to another installment of the O Group on the World Water Nation podcast. With myself, World Water Explorer Lawrence Waller, and my colleague, Bathford Guide Ben Main, here at World Water Nation. In this episode, we are turning to Italy and looking at the campaign there, 1943 to 1945. Often uh, very easily overlooked, I suppose it's it's uh, easy to say really with that one. And I, you know, I've got to own up to that myself. I'm very focused on Normandy, as I think we all are, being so close and so easy to get across the continent from where we are in the UK. Um, we'll be looking at what Churchill described the soft underbelly of Europe, or as Mark Clark later described, that tough old gut. So today we're joined by Ledger's head battlefield guide, Paul Breed, who's going to talk to us more about this. So welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me, Lawrence. Pleasure to be here. Well, I'm really looking forward to this one today. We've discussed it a little bit uh, over the past year, touching on the fact that it is a, a campaign that has been, I think, fair to say, overlooked. It is, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it was dominated really from the very beginning by a desire to return to what was the American perception of Europe, which, although Italy, you know, the last time I checked on a map, that was in Europe, but uh, the Americans, the route to defeat Nazi Germany was through France, because if you get France, you get the Low Countries, if you get the Low Countries, you've got a route into Nazi Germany. And for America, they weren't interested in what they saw as, as sideshows and obviously from the increasing role of American forces within the Allied cause, they are the ones that, uh, that call the shots. But, you know, the, the story of Italy goes back to the end of another campaign, which was the campaign in North Africa with the surrender of, of the Africa Corps in Tunisia in May 1943. And, and after that, you know, what, what do you do next? You've defeated the Germans in Africa. You're not in a position to invade France because there's not enough um, landing craft. You haven't developed all the kit and equipment that you're going to need to get through any German defences. There's simply not enough trained troops to be able to pull it off. And you can't just sit on your hands. You've got to, you've got to do something. And if we look at the, the area between North Africa and Italy, it's the Mediterranean Sea, which is a traditional British area of interest. I mean, Churchill, Prime Minister, is often accused of being obsessed with the Mediterranean, but he's not the first British Prime Minister to, to be like that. You know, there's it's a, it's a big connection between access to the Med and, and, and our position within the empire and an ability to maintain that empire. So Churchill's eyes move, as you rightly described it, to the soft underbelly of the Third Reich, which is Italy, this tempting prize which we can skip across the mid uh invade and and come up through um italy into austria and then come up into the southern part of nazi germany into its its heartland in many respects of bavaria you know and defeat it uh, en route to berlin that's the idea but you know 14 months later um mark clark and and many other veterans Again, as you describe, uh, called it the tough old guts, so far from being a soft underbelly. You touched on a really interesting point there. I suppose the politics of it all plays a massive part in, oh, a large part, okay, maybe massive might be the same, but it plays an influential part in how I see the campaign developing or how it eventually develops, obviously with Helen hindsight, but they constantly seem to be dogged by a lack of resources, troops being pulled from the front to put, you know, eventually into Normandy or southern France. 
how much does politics play a role in all this? Um, well, certainly, certainly an element of it. I think it's the politics of command rather than international politics, because, you know, as I mentioned, the, the Americans with a with a senior partner really as as we move from 1943 into 1944, uh, and the approach of you know the actual D Day operations in in Normandy, and the Americans were not committed to Italy from the very beginning. I mean, they put thousands of troops and huge amount of other forces and, and, and obviously equipment and everything else. But their intention was to invade mainland France and defeat Germany that way. And this was just a, a sideshow. It, it would have its potential benefits in tying up potentially huge amounts of German forces that could be used to defend an Atlantic wall. And, you know, we've got another partner that we haven't mentioned yet, of course, which is Russia. Soviet Russia, who is busily fighting away on the Eastern Front and is forever putting the Western allies under pressure to do something to sort of relieve that, uh, not just with the supply of material, with Lend-Lease and everything else, but by actually doing something, fighting the Germans and, and forcing them to move units from Russia to, to other fronts. And, and Africa hadn't really truly succeeded in that, I don't think, but Italy would, you know, if you look at a lot of the the German units that served in the Italian campaign, they had been on the Russian front and quite a lot of the German veterans that I've met in Italy were veterans of the Russian front. One of them had been at Stalingrad and was lucky that he'd been wounded quite early on and was flown out before any more flights were, uh, you know, were just not possible anymore. So um, it's a big play as with, with any battle in any aspect of history, but in particular with the the Second World War, when it is coalition warfare of, of a lot of different nations, you've got to keep the different partners happy. And, and Italy was a was a logical decision in the summer of 1943, because you, you couldn't just do any, you couldn't just sit there and do nothing. Um, you couldn't just say, right, I'll tell you what, we'll just transfer all the troops from Africa to the UK and we'll sit there until we've you know got enough beans in the jar to be able to take on the Atlantic wall, um, because that would just simply give the Germans enough time to build up more forces, transfer troops to Russia, and then you've got the Soviet Union not very happy. So, you know, it's a, it's a big uh, calculation on the part of senior commanders and politicians. But from the British point of view, it touches and resonates with our own empire interests. And for the Americans, they can see a degree of logic in it in terms of how it would tie up forces from Nazi Germany um, for an eventual victory campaign, which for them was never going to be Italy. It was always going to be France. Mm, that's a very good point, that is, about obviously tying up units that could have been used on the Northwest European theatre operations when they get going. And I guess also as well, that added advantage. Obviously, you've got uh, battle experience troops you've used in Africa and obviously then subsequently in Operation Husky, capture of Sicily. You're also then prepping units, which, like I mentioned earlier, you're going to then pull out, potentially for Normandy. Um, but you can also get units there that are going to maybe have initially been a little bit greener and had the opportunity to then uh, what's, what's a, not test their metal, but um, gain that experience again and then you need to use in Normandy. Absolutely. And I, and I think as well, it's also, um, and I don't think that they made enough of this because there were extensive um, examinations of, of the warfare that took place in Italy while it was going on. 
in the same way that once the campaign in Northwest Europe began, they began to analyze um, the effects of fighting and the types of fighting there. When, for example, you know, after the Normandy campaign, they began to look at all the tank wrecks in Normandy to work out how they'd been knocked out, how many shots it took to, to, to knock them out, things like this. So this operational warfare research was going on there and it had been going on in Italy. And I don't think there was enough knowledge sharing uh, because there were certainly lessons learned in Italy that could have been applied to the campaign in Northwest Europe. And probably there's a PhD in there uh, for someone to, to look at that material and, and, to, um, and to see how influential or, or not it was. I mean, you mentioned units that, you know, that were battle hardened and, and there were there were several that had served you know, throughout the North African campaign that went on to fight in Sicily and then subsequently on the Italian mainland. And when Monty gave up command of, of the 8th Army and was sent to command 21st Army Group in preparation for the Normandy uh, landings, he, he took with him, it's often said, some of his favoured divisions, which was 50th Northumbrian Division, 51st Harlem Division, 7th Armoured Division, so on. And then, you know, you look critically at the battle performance of some of those units in the Normandy campaign. And there's this idea that they are reluctant veterans to a degree, um, that they've seen such a lot of combat. Um, and it's quite clear that, you know, with the Normandy invasion succeeding as it does quite quickly, that the end of the war is coming. Do they want to be, you know, having been there since the beginning? 50th Div is a good example. You've got guys that, you know, would have come off the mole at Dunkirk in June 1940 um, after the Battle of France. You know, did they want to be the last ones to be killed, you know, in the final knockings of the war? Um, so possibly taking veteran troops and then sending them home first to have some home leave before you make them invade France perhaps wasn't always the, the best decision. But but again, you know, there's, there's, there's some interesting studies of battle performance of those of those units in Italy, you do see clear evidence of the adaptation to fighting, and and a lot of lessons are learned that could have been applied to Northwest Europe, particularly in terms of, of urban warfare. So fighting in in built up areas, which you see, you know, at places like Ortona in December 1943 with the, the Canadian action there, and also at Casino itself in in several other battles where. You know, we tend to be obsessed by the monastery, but there was fighting in the town and, and men were fighting, you know, not just from building to building, but room to room, cellar to cellar, drainage ditch to drainage ditch, you know, and, and all of that would have had potentially influence on the way the British Liberation Army fought its battles from 1944 to 45. Whether it did or not, uh, you know, I think is, is disputable, perhaps. Well, we'll definitely be going on to touching on Monte Cassino uh, and sort of the four months worth of fighting there. But if we just roll back to sort of the start of the campaign, September 43, actually maybe even just before that, um, obviously Operation Husky has been a huge success, uh, debatably obviously with the, the German escape, the forces crossed um, to mainland Italy. But what happens then? Because obviously Italy essentially changed sides and then we make that plunge into Italy. Well, I mean, when they, when they looked after North Africa at what they're going to be able to do in Italy, one thing they quickly realised that, you know, that you've got the Mediterranean Sea there. And for an invasion to be successful, it needs to have a good degree of, of air cover protection. And the distance and the loss of things like carriers and so on was significant enough to make that 
not an impossibility, but difficult. So that's Operation Husky is, is part of that to sort of essentially capture the island of Sicily and use it as a as a leap board to get across to the, the Italian mainland. So as you mentioned, Operation Husky, July 1943, Italy uh, is invaded, but at an island rather than the main mainland itself. British and Commonwealth forces land to the east, Americans land further around. It's a bit of a battle that you see there between Montgomery and Patton, which, you know, possibly they dropped the ball a bit, which, as you hinted at, saw a great degree of German forces get across the um, Strait of Messina there and onto uh, the Italian mainland. And then meanwhile, um, well, after that, having secured, most importantly, the, the airfields on, on Sicily, this gives them the ability to to go and take on the Italian mainland. And Italy surrenders, um, not entirely because, you know, a big chunk of the, of the country will remain under German occupation, you know, right until almost the very end of the war. And, and Italian units by 1945, for example, are fighting on both sides. So you've got Italians supporting the new government, fighting alongside um, British and Commonwealth soldiers and Americans in 15 Army Group. And then you've got Northern Italian fascists still fighting alongside uh, Nazi Germany in those in those final battles. So it's quite a curious state of affairs. And, that, and that's a statement when you <laughs> describe the Italian campaign that you use quite a lot, really, because it, it is an extraordinary theatre European theatre of war, really, for World War II. So having captured Sicily, this gave them the opportunity to land in Italy proper. And with the um, the changing of sides and the surrender of Italy, there was a feeling this was going to be some sort of a walkover, but you know, that was far from the case. The Italians weren't really, at, at that stage, much of a concern to us. Much more concerning was German forces uh, within Italy itself, who had proven you know, to be quite... Um, considerable opposition uh, in Sicily. So one phase sees um, the, the main landing at Salerno, which is Operation Avalanche on the, the 9th of September 1943. But Monty's went round to, that was Mark Clark's Fifth Army landing there. So that was an American army, but it included quite a lot of British and Commonwealth forces. And then the Eighth Army landed down at the sort of boot of Italy, uh, to come up on the other side, because facing the Allies in Italy in this so-called soft underbelly was a major, major issue, which wasn't the Italians, wasn't the Germans, but it was the geography. Um, Italy has got this big spine running down the middle of it, which is the Apennines Mountains, which is pretty much impassable. Um, French colonial troops do fight in the mountains, but you can't fight your big battles there. And you've got two coastal plains. You've got the Adriatic side, with a main road running up there. And then you've got the Mediterranean side uh, with Route 6 and Route 7, which will take you to Rome. And they weren't really in a position, even with Sicily, to land as close to Rome as they wanted to. And Salerno uh, was uh, the, the place that was the best location that you could advance and then move up to, uh, to Rome from there. They'd looked at the employment of American airborne forces you know at this stage as well to to actually drop on Rome um, to try and see the sort of collapse of the last phase of any sort of resistance there while they landed at Salerno I mean even today you know in a nice modern ledger coach going up the motorway it would take us a fair 
fair bit of time to get from Salerno up to Rome. In 1943, those American airborne lads, if they'd have been cut off at, uh, at Rome and surrounded, I think it would have made even something like Arnhem look like a bit of a picnic in, in comparison. So it's probably a good thing that that never, that never happened. Um, we got ashore. It wasn't easy at Salerno, particularly on the American sector. They used National Guard units that had never seen action before, and they came up against some pretty stiff German opposition. Uh, the Germans, there was no, there was no Atlantic Wall. There was no serious coastal defences at Salerno. There's a couple of old towers which are still there that show quite a lot of battle damage on them. They look a bit like the sort of Martello towers that you see on the Sussex and Kent coast. Um, and there's a few machine gun positions and barbed wire and minefield and stuff, but it's nothing like Normandy. But what the German um, plan was in Italy, unlike Normandy, where the idea was to kill the Allies on the beaches, they believed in the in the concept of letting them land and form a beachhead, and then you hit them from every side with counterattacks and huge amounts of artillery. And you know that might have worked against the Russians to a degree, but with a force like that you saw with the Fifth Army landing at Salerno, you know, the added addition of naval gunfire uh, and the ability to put a lot of troops ashore very quickly, in particular the artillery, and in particular the British artillery, tipped the balance there quite substantially, and, and the Germans didn't quite manage to throw us back into the sea as they had uh, as they'd wished. Monty, uh, up on the other side, had a fairly easy landing, really. I mean, that was pretty much unopposed. But then he was finding himself advancing up a coastal road and eventually bumped the Germans on that side as they moved up towards the, the Sangro Valley, which was Monty's last major engagement in Italy before he went back to the UK. So you get to sort of from September through to the early autumn of 43, we've landed, we've got ashore, we've got the Fifth Army in the southern sector around Route 6 and 7. We've got Monty on the other side on the Adriatic coast moving up towards the Sangro. Um, but the Germans are utilising, again, this key factor of geography, of terrain, to defend every road and every pass and every bridge and every river. So the Volturno and the Grigliano, these rivers, all become, to the troops on the ground, sort of household names and on the Adriatic side, the Sangro. And the Germans successfully hold us back. And, and while they're doing that, they're building the Gustav line. So, Paul, you mentioned, obviously, um, the American airborne divisions weren't used to drop behind enemy lines at Rome. But did the Allies use either the American airborne divisions or the British airborne divisions in this campaign? Well, yeah, airborne troops were used, uh, both British and, uh, and American. Um, American airborne units were dropped into Salerno to re reinforce the bridgehead there when things went uh, a little bit south for them in the landings around Paestum, uh, for example. But there was nothing like the sort of combat that they would experience in Normandy. Although, you know, many many of the guys that dropped into St. Mary Glees on, on D-Day had seen action in, in the Italian campaign. Units of the 1st British Airborne Division were over on the Adriatic side, and they were used as, as ground troops, really, more like reconnaissance troops. Um, and then the bulk of those were eventually sort of moved from Italy to get ready for the next big airborne operation in Northwest Europe, which of course for them would be um, Operation Market Garden and, and their, their little uh, sojourn to, uh, to Arnhem. <laughs> um, so it, it wasn't really a campaign in which airborne forces were 
used or or instituted really in in the same way that they were in Northwest Europe. And you touched on already that almost like an Italian civil war. How did things develop between those fighting on either side? Is it fair to say it's a civil war? I think to a degree, because you you know you had essentially sort of one side of the Gustav line once that was built. Uh, so let's say the Allied side. So that's the, sort of the middle bit of Italy all the way down to to the bottom. Um, you had a, a government loyal to the Allied cause and supplying troops to the Allied cause. Now we didn't necessarily trust these. In fact, many of the veterans, including my own father never trusted the Italians during the war. He always said that he felt that every time they entered an Italian village and there'd be loads of civilians waving American and English flags on their side of the village as they entered, the Germans would be leaving on the other side and they'd be waving swastikas on that side. Of the village. Um, you know, <laughs> he had nothing against the Italians, um, but that, that was the view that he had. And, it, and again, some of the veterans that I've had on trips with me a couple of guys were in the Royal Army Service Corps. Um, one was an officer in charge of a mule unit. And they, uh, obviously in the, the Apennines and, and indeed some of the hills on, on the Italian plains, the only way up there was with mules. You couldn't take vehicles up there. And the Royal Army Service Corps had these mule companies um, operating in Italy. And a big chunk of the personnel were Italian. And um, with about sort of, you know, I don't know, say a couple of hundred Italians um, being overseen by 20 or 30 men from the Royal Army Service Corps. The RESC guys were armed, but the Italians were not because they didn't entirely trust them to have weapons uh, because some of these men had served for the Italian, with the Italian army in North Africa or on garrison duty in Italy. So, you know, they'd, essentially they'd changed sides and so they weren't sure of their, of their true intentions. So, so you had all that. And then on the other side, you know, up in Northern Italy, you had, people loyal to the Mussolini and, and the fascist cause who continued to fight for the Nazis right up until um, until the end. And, you know, if you look at the story of the of the Holocaust in, in Italy, uh, something that people perhaps don't always consider, you know, the, um, the willingness to round up Jews and send them off to the camps you know, was pretty strong, particularly in northern Italy, which was a, that part of that hotbed of, of Italian fascism. And what role did the Italian resistance end up playing in this campaign? Well, it's not a dissimilar situation to to what was happening in France, really, is that you're seeing, you know, opposing political ideals. So while, you know, in a country like Italy, there's plenty of people who, su who support a fascist cause, there's quite a lot that, that, are, that are communist. So you're, you're looking at communist resistance cells that had probably been active, you know, before the Allies even even arrived. Um, and the Soviet Union had supplied quite a lot of guys to fight with these communist um, resistance units. We occasionally come across in some of the British and Commonwealth cemeteries in Italy the graves of Soviet soldiers, particularly officers, who have died um, fighting with Italian partisans. And again, you know, up on the, the Adriatic coast, I can think of a few places there. There's, there's some in um, the Moro River War Cemetery, um, British officers who were doing exactly the same thing, parachuted into the Apennines and fighting alongside the Italian partisans there. So that was going on, but that, you know, that was never going to win this war, just like the resistance in France was never going to defeat Nazi Germany's occupation of, of the French mainland. One thing, obviously, that would be interesting to touch on with you is 
obviously like we know, the, you know these great massacres that take place in the northwestern European theatre like Orador um, you have obviously the Arden Abbey all that kind of thing what's what's the situation in Italy because I think there's probably very similar things going on that uh, for example I'm not aware of but I'm guessing have been impacted I suppose by reactions to the resistance those knee-jerk you know, uh, tit-for-tat kind of approach I guess one could say well, I think following the collapse of the Italian government and essentially the change in sides, and although Italians continue to fight alongside the uh, the German forces in Italy, I think perhaps like us, they never they never trusted them either. Uh, and there were, as you as you mentioned, that you know there were instances in which Italian partisans shot Germans, you know, ambushed convoys and and things like this. And this led in in quite a number of places to civilians being rounded up and and shot. Um, up in northern Italy, you know, there, there are there are some that are very similar to the stories of Orador, but it's something that you know, having travelled around Italy, pretty much every place that I've been to, particularly up in the Apennines, you you find examples of the Germans just rounding people up and, and shooting people. So, although this is a nation that you know was part of the Axis and had supported them for a huge chunk of the early phase of the Second World War. They didn't think twice about shooting these people if they thought they were a threat to them. So we've successfully landed. Uh, Salerno's are down, as you say, the, the, the boot right at the bottom, um, and gradually working our way up in the end of '43. How does the campaign develop from there, I suppose, and what's also the German reaction, obviously, under Kessering? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to say that that early part of the campaign was a success, and it was because we got ashore, you know, on both parts of Italy but you know old, old Jerry was pulling a fast one on us really because he was slowing us down you know with all these rivers and valleys and mountains and everything else because he was building a first world war style system of defenses right across Italy in from the Adriatic coast over the Apennines and, and down across to the Mediterranean coast and that was the Gustav line and once that was ready uh, the Germans pulled back into it and we found ourselves banging head on against uh, you know quite a formidable system of german defenses of which there were no flanks apart from the sea um so while the the gustav line might not have been quite as strong up in the mountains we're not going to be able to send tank forces or anything else that way we've got to use these roads because you know even today when you travel around that that part of italy you, you see very visibly the issues that the allies had in moving forces around it's it's a very rural area a rural part of italy it's a poor part of italy so it doesn't quite get the investment that perhaps you know places in the north did so you are reliant on these big roads route six is you know a famous road in the italian campaign uh, because it took you to rome but because it was also this main axis of advance and you needed um, and you needed this but with the the withdrawal of the Germans to the Gustav line in, in the same way that they'd done in the Great War with the withdrawal to the, the Hindenburg line in, in 1917, it changed the sort of warfare completely because it, it created big battles. It created the necessity for big battles where from Salerno through to the first battle of Monte Cassino, um, you know, these were small scale operations, really, with some exceptions of Altona. And the Canadians and fighting up the Moro um, on that side of, of Italy is an exception. And the crossing of the Sangro, you know, it's quite a big battle involving um, a huge amount of British and Commonwealth troops, particularly Indian troops uh, from the um, from one of the Indian divisions. But 
Casino was, you know, I think really where the idea of Italy being a soft underbelly and in fact really being a tough old gut, that's where you you see this coming into play. And and with the creation of the Gustav line and the movement of British forces up through Italy, one of the, the key places that we don't often talk about that was taken, uh, what was absolutely vital to us, was Naples. Now, not because, you know, it was strategically important in terms of defeating Italy and, and Nazi Germany as such, but it was a port. It was a deep water port. And it meant that we could bring in supplies and equipment and everything else um, on a massive scale to feed the war machine that was going to be necessary to defeat the Germans in Italy. So, you know, just as we all know about the Mulberry Harbour in Normandy and the importance of capture the port of Antwerp later on in the campaign in 1944, Naples was just an, as, as important uh, a location uh, for, for that, for, for the Italian campaign. Um, so it gave us that ability and it also gave us the ability to use Naples as a place to form a flotilla to try and outflank that Gustav line. Because as I mentioned, the only flanks were the sea. And the key is Rome, you know, get to Rome, get up Route 6, get to Rome. So, you know, we're going to try and break through the Gustav line, but let's try and get round it and let's land as close as we possibly can to Rome. Oh, look, there's a nice beach here, a place called Anzio. This is not too far from Rome. And of course, in January 1944, that becomes Operation Shingle. And the landings in Anzio um, are designed to relieve um, the pressure on our ability to break through the Gustav line. In the end, the battles of Casino are the ones that have to save the troops at Anzio, not the other way around, because you know Anzio, as I'm sure we'll discuss, proves to be a lost opportunity uh, in many ways. So it becomes absolutely attritional, sluggish warfare with four massive battles at Casino and a long period, which again, people don't really realise from the end of the, the third battle through to the fourth and final battle at Casino of what is essentially static trench warfare around Casino, both in the town and, and up on the massif above it. Yeah, I think that's um, a very good point there. I mean, that's the thing when I was reading up on it was amazing how much this campaign struck me as something of a First World War battlefield and experience, really, for the troops that had to go through it and the campaign, and the type of warfare that was waged, these set, just giant set battles um, of attritional nature, just from defensive line to defensive line, working away through it, taking months to get through each one almost effectively. and the hardship and deprivations that those troops had to endure um, and we'll obviously touch on that with your father Anzio um, digging in uh, essentially making a foxhole or dugout or slit trench however you want to call it and being shelled to, to hell really um, for many months on end and having to cope with minimal minimal supplies um, I mean it's just striking really to me how different this campaign is uh, compared to the likes of Normandy and that Northwestern European theatre that we're all so used to. Absolutely. I mean, just about every veteran that I've, I've taken back to Italy or interviewed who fought in the Italian campaign, you know, they always draw an analogy to the to the First World War, Great War, as they call it. And, you know, my old pal John Dray, who was uh, one, of, one of my original team of Ledger Battlefield guys when we first started in 97, he fought at Monte Casino as a teenage Tommy, 
1944. And the first time we went up to Snake's Head Ridge together um, at Monte Cassino overlooking the, the monastery, you know, I'd walked many times with him on battlefields of the Great War. And the way he described it was in very much a Great War sort of context, living in Sangers. Uh, they couldn't dig in there because it's a rocky massif. And um, so they couldn't really dig very much at all. So they built these circular uh, positions uh, the British Army had learned to make on the northwest frontier of India, build them up out of stones and so on. And they lived in them during the daylight hours. He peed into a jam tin and tipped it over the side and it got so hot that it melted the, the bully beef and you'd pour it out of the tin and, and what have you. And then they got stonked by mortar fire and there was a fixed MG-34 firing across at them all the time. And, you know, and the only time they could move was at night. And it you could be describing anywhere on the Western Front between, you know, beginning of trench warfare and, and the, the beginning of the mobile war in 1918. So it, 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 the similarities are exactly the same. And my dad, you know, he was, he was in a field regiment, Royal Artillery, the regular army one, 24th Field Regiment, and they'd gone to war with 25 pounders towed by quads. And um, when they came to Italy, they were designated as part of the US Fifth Army. Um, so rather than have 25 pounder ammunition, they needed to have 105s to have American ammunition. So they upgraded them to become a mobile field regiment. So they became self-propelled. They had priests, M7 priests. And the first place they sent them to was Anzio, which was the most static part of the entire campaign, which they always felt was a bit of an army joke somehow, that you know, you make them a mobile artillery unit and you put them into a static <laughs> location. So yeah, so he lived in trenches there and, and they had a dug in uh, Sherman tank, OP Sherman tank, which was their observation post. Um, looking up towards the flyover and Aprilla beyond uh, Anzio, um, which was vulnerable. You know, I mean, he nearly got killed there. He, he was in a shift. They did their turn in the OP, got relieved by another shift, went back, and it got hit by um, shell fire, and everyone inside was killed. And there's a whole row of them buried there at Anzio Cemetery at, uh, from his battery, 2-2 battery, that were killed in February '44. And, and it's one of the reasons why he could never go back. There was this survivor's guilt that just a, you know, probably tens of minutes difference and it would have been him buried there. I remember reading up on this, um, his, his story, his account, and there's a really interesting photo, isn't there, with Archie of his Sherman tank dug in, the OP. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, they, he, he spent his war um, in one of these tanks because he trained, he'd worked for Marconi before the war on the development of, radio and indeed radar and uh he'd registered for military service in september 38 at the time of the sudetenland crisis and he'd been given his call-up papers in 39 but he was held back because of the work that they were doing on radar and stuff so he didn't go into the army until 1943 um and he trained on radio operations and he and he, he also did the dr driving courses he could drive absolutely anything you know from a bring gun carrier through to um tank transporter and um so he ended up being in the uh, battery commander's um op tank which is a sherman tank uh with the gun removed with a wooden barrel and the the turret full of radio sets and the only weapon he had was a 50 caliber up on the turret ring and uh that was it and he spent his war in there partly because he was an expert on radio and partly because, you know, if the driver got killed, he could take over and drive the tank. But Anzio, when driving anywhere, he used to drive up and down in a Jeep uh, from the 
down at the, at the docks up towards the, uh, the flyover, but even then you got to a point where you couldn't drive any further. And shelled health lever as he did so, probably. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's right. And of course they, you know, they were, and this was a problem. I mean, you see these signs, you know, dust kills. Um, and you see that in Normandy, you know, but it's the same in Italy. I mean, it's you know, from April onwards, um, which you know, a couple of months after they landed at Anzio and the same at Casino, it's pretty warm in Italy and everything is dry as dust and the movement of vehicles is going to create a lot of dust and therefore going to create a lot of, uh, attract a lot of attention uh, from old Jerry and you're going to get shelled to hell as they did at Anzio, who had been shelled from, Everything from mortars to Nebelwerfers up to Anzio Annie, which is the big railway gun that was firing these First World War railway shells, railway cal- gun caliber shells into uh, into Anzio. So they've uh, been lobbed at with everything. When you talk us through what happens in terms of the breakout from Anzio and I guess the uh, success at Monte Cassino, because obviously there's a lot of controversy really about what happens next with Mark Clark, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, we could talk all day about just the four battles of Casino, but in, in January '44, as as the the plan for the landing at Anzio was was being put into place, the Americans attacked along the Rapido, uh, or what they thought was the Rapido, which is in fact the River Gari um, to to the south of, of the Casino. The main Rapido itself um, to the north of the town, they attacked there as well. I think they were more successful on, on what was actually the Rapido. But to the south, um, the Texas lads got absolutely massacred in trying to cross that river there to a point where the survivors pushed for a congressional inquiry um, after the war, which was, wasn't successful. Mark Clark was vindicated. But it was um, you know, an, a good example of, of poor command in, in making men who were going to take on an assault carry all their gear up and then do all the work and then get it across and be expected to fight. It was, it was, it was not um, America's finest hour in the, in the second world war by, by any means, but what they did do in that first battle is get a foothold in casino town. And then they crossed the actual rapido to the North and got up into the foothills and to try and come round the high ground around the back of the monastery. Um, and that's really where the battles of Casino start. It becomes this, you know, this big slogging match, this traditional warfare. The second battle sees the bombing of the monastery, the controversial bombing of the of the monastery. Uh, American bombers come up from one of the bases um, that they've captured further down in Italy, and I think they come out of the sky at seventeen thousand feet and drop an incredible amount of tonnage on the monastery. And people say, you know, why, why, why did they do it? Um, you know, it was a sacred building and so on. Well, Eisenhower had said that, you know, we're now, with the invasion of Italy, we're now entering the, um, the European heartland of culture and civilization, and, and we'll do as much as possible to preserve great buildings and places of importance, but not at the cost of, of allied lives. And the men on the ground, particularly from 4th Indian Division, were convinced that the monastery was bristling with with German troops, whether they were Panzergrenadiers or Fallschirmjäger. Um, so there was a desire for it to be bombed. And just about every veteran that I've had who, who actually was at the monastery, in front of the monastery at that time, pretty convinced that the um, uh, the, the bombing was, was justified. I mean, there was one, I was interviewed with a guy for the 70th anniversary of uh, Monte Cassino on Italian television. And they asked both of us, was the bombing of the monastery um, did we think it was a good or a bad decision? Was it justified? And we both, 
can explain the context of it and the veteran um, Richard even even more so from 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 his point of view. And then this Italian guy said, "Well, you know, Churchill said um, it wasn't justified." <laughs> so this this veteran Richard just turned to him and said, "Well, Churchill wasn't here." Uh, <laughs> And I and I just think that that was that was the view of it. What it did create, of course, was this big pile of rubble that was even more easy to defend, and uh, and, and there was a bit of a lack of coordination between troops on the ground and and the you know, American Army Air Force coming in, and, and this, this, the problems that you have in coalition warfare of of allies talking to each other, uh, and as it progresses through the second battle into the third, you know, the fighting in the town becomes more and more important. They try to send a, a tank force up around the back of the monastery where they, um, they, they build basically a brand new New Zealand and Indian engineers build a brand new uh, road around the, around the back uh, of the monastery and send a tank force up there, New Zealand tanks and American tanks uh, that burst into a position called Albanita farm somewhat surprising the German Fauschenjäger guys that, uh, that are there, but they react very quickly and, and take out these tanks, which are sent out without any supporting infantry. So that, that attack fails. And that's when you have these, these two months of, of trench warfare nearly. So from, you know, March 44 through to the final battle in May, it's static warfare where down in the town, they're raiding positions and up on the snake's head Ridge, they're raiding positions and it's fixed weaponry with whether it's mortars or machine guns firing and so on and and when you look at the you know the british battalions that are up there i mean they're losing guys every single day that they're just holding those static positions the 78th battle axe division they're up there for a big chunk of that time second Lancashire fusiliers fifth north ants and so on and um you know they lose a lot of guys just just by holding a line um and then the poles move in they take over that sector they properly assess it which Possibly you could argue the British and the Commonwealth troops have not done um, uh, and the Poles are, you know, they're, they're here to do business. And uh, and the battle that you see in May when they break through those positions, you know, that's, it's, it's no accident that's success because they've analysed that ground and, and they've put a lot of effort and in the right places to try and, um, to try and defeat it. But of course, one way it succeeds um, is, is that it's not just about the monastery. Because they're attacking the um, in the Leary Valley, beneath the monastery at the same time, British and Commonwealth forces are attacking there as the poles uh, are coming up over onto the rubble of the of the monastery. And again, you know, with the vets, you go down into the Aquino Aerodrome area where the Battleaxe Division that had been up at the monastery during that quiet period made their attack in the final battle of Casino. Many of them, including John Dray, you know, remembered looking up and seeing the. The red and white pennant of the poles uh, flying from the rubble of the monastery indicating that the eyes of the monastery had been snuffed out at last and um, you could carry on with your advance. And, and this was the key to it because that position of the monastery, which is why men wanted it bombed and destroyed, was so dominant without its, its neutralisation, whether that was by bombing or capture or hopefully both, uh, you couldn't advance up Route 6 and you couldn't get to Rome. Uh, and with the collapse of or that position with the collapse of the Gustav line and the Germans pulling back to what was originally the Hitler line um, at the far end of the Liri Valley, that led to the situation in Anzio taking a turn and the, the breakout happening there, with the build-up of forces and artillery and troops and more divisions being brought in. Um, and the idea was this, this two-pronged attack 
properly this time to break through the Gustav line, advance up Route 6 to Rome, and then the men from Manzio come round and, and do the same there. But that was when 5th Army Commander um, Mark Clark decided to, um, to go to Rome. You know, he's got two things in front of him, collapsing German army in one direction, defeat of the German armed forces potentially in, 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 in Italy in the Italian campaign, or, um, you know, the slightly sexier prize of Rome and, and all the publicity and everything else that would, that would go along with that. Uh, and of course, you know, this is by this stage, we're looking at the first few days of June 1944. And, and as we know, and as they knew, you know, an operation for the invasion of France was coming. And, and someone like Mark Clark thought, well, if I'm ever going to get my moment in Italy, this potentially could be it. Because once they land in wherever they're going to land in France, that's going to be the headline news. So he, he pushed his resources to Rome and allowed tens of thousands of German soldiers to uh, to get away and, and fight another day. And just about every British veteran I've ever taken to Italy, including my own father, um, they hate his guts as a consequence of this. Thanks for listening. We hope you found it of interest. If you enjoyed this episode, please do feel free to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review. We hugely appreciate your support. We should be sharing more information about various things mentioned in this episode of the O Group on our social media channels. You can find this info and drop us a message with any questions by following us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World's Nation and also Instagram at World's Nation HQ. Obviously, also a big thank you to Paul for taking the time to chat with us about this fascinating topic. Part two of this conversation about the Italian campaign in the Second World War will be out very shortly.